everyone, this is Food Talk, the podcast with Danny Nirenberg. Today I'm talking to Stephen Jones, the director of the Bread Lab at Washington State University. We talk about the fear of carbs, how we love bread, and also two of my other favorite food groups, beer and whiskey. Enjoy the show! Hi, everyone. This is Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. Uh, today, we're chatting with uh, someone I really like a lot, Stephen Jones, the director of the Bread Lab at Washington State University. What's interesting to me is that Stephen and his colleagues are taking on one of the world's oldest processed foods, bread, and innovating ways to make it better. Um, you won't be surprised to learn that Stephen is a wheat breeder, is an, uh, an expert in genetics. At the Bread Lab, he works with his colleagues to breed wheat, barley, and other grains for farmers and brewers in the coastal west of the United States and the upper northwest. And I, I'm thinking other places, too. You can correct me in a minute. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun uh, with these conversations, and I'm really glad you can be a part of it. Do you want to add anything to the, the really short bio I just gave you? No, I think it sounded great, and I'm just, just thrilled to be here talking with you. Appreciate it so much. Um, so one of the things that I like to do is start off by asking people their favorite sort of food memories. Um, you know, I have my own from childhood and, and growing up with a mom who liked to garden and can and other people have, you know, great memories of how they became interested in food or a special meal they ate. I, has bread always been an obsession for you or do you have another food memory that you want to share? I <clears throat> I think it goes right to bread. So um, my last name is Jones, but my mother's maiden name was Okunowicz, and um, I'm half Polish, 100% half Polish. And um, my Polish grandmother Stephanie taught me to bake bread when nice. I was about six years old, nice. and I I just I just loved that um, the whole memory of that. And then we got into bagels, and she taught me how to cut up chickens and things like that. Awesome. So I. I never looked back from that. And I had a great uncle, her brother, that owned a bakery in Newark, New Jersey as well. So it's it's been there in our in our family and I, I just love it. That's fantastic. That's great. I remember making bagels with my mom who was not Jewish. My dad was and so I grew up, you know, uh, sort of getting um, a slice of, of both Christianity and, and Judaism. And my mom was very, like, cool about making sure I knew how to, like, cook Jewish foods. And so bagels were definitely part of that. Um, so cool. I, I want you to talk a little bit about, about the bread lab. So I imagine it, you know, it, you, you call it both a, a think tank and a laboratory. But when I think about it in my head, because I haven't had the chance to visit, I think of it, you know, I think of like, you know, the lab side with Petri dishes and, you know, lots of seeds and a seed bank. And for some reason in my head, I also think of, of big ovens and, and people with flour in their hair. But so correct me. <laughs> Tell me what it's really like. It's exactly what it's like. So we have we have four main rooms. One is the bread lab proper, and there's some analytical equipment, which is pretty sophisticated, and we have a microscope and things like that, just as you would imagine. But um, the main lab itself is a is a craft bakery, so it's about 1,200 square feet, and we have a steam-injected hearth oven with four decks, and we have wow. a a revent uh, rotary oven, and, and um, everything is a bit miniaturized. But we can have bakers and chefs come from around the world and, and just hang out and feel comfortable there. So it's a, the bread lab is really a meeting place first, I think, for 
for breeders and PhD students and community members and, and bakers and chefs, millers, maltsters, distillers, all to come together and kind of inform back and forth how we can how we can make better food. Um, next to that room, then we have a milling room where we have 12 different flour mills. And next to that, we have a full-blown kitchen, which also is about 1,200 square feet. And that's a, a place for discovery as well. Uh, Nels Brisbane is in there and Canlis uh, Brothers have, have funded that. And next nice. to it is the King Arthur Baking Center where we have a, uh, today they're doing a start a three day course in uh, whole wheat sourdough. So it's a, it's exactly as you, you picture it. That's fantastic. And, and can you talk about the people who, you know, you, you describe some of the people who join you, but your graduate students, how, how do people get interested in, in becoming part of the, the research that you're doing there? I think for our, for our PhD students, they're, they're attracted to a program that's a little different. And I think there's great, great strength in being different and being out of place. Mm-hmm. So here we are, wheat breeders north of Seattle. So we're between Seattle and Vancouver, British Columbia. That's, that's not the middle of Kansas or that's not the wheat sure. belt. That's an area where we're out of place. It's a highly diverse agriculture of small farms. It's a vibrant agricultural community, but but being out of place helps us attract some really intelligent students that that honestly don't have a lot of other places to go if they're interested in mm-hmm. community outreach and art and literature and genetics and breeding and bread. So a lot of quirky and, and people access to, access to what we do as well. Uh-huh. So, yeah. so a lot of really interesting quirky people work with you is what you're telling me. Super quirky, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Oddballs <laughs> like are my favorite. Me too. Me too. Um, so you have relationships with companies like King Arthur who helped fund the Bread Lab. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The, so we have a new endowment that's, that's starting up for the, for the Bread Lab for organic breeding and innovation. And it's an endowed uh, professorship. Cliff Barr, uh, gave uh, the majority of the funding and then King Arthur, uh, the two of those came together and then other members of the community have come together to, to put a million and a half dollars forward to have an endowment through the university. Um, we work with a lot of other companies as, as well, large and small. The, the Patagonia, for instance, nice. so Yvonne Chenard and Rose Macario um, helped fund us. And the, the common thread there is is people that want our food system to be a little cleaner mm-hmm. in terms of the environmental impact, but also cleaner in terms of what we eat, uh, taking ingredients out that only help processors, and then also um, people that are interested in the nutritional value and the deliciousness of what we do as well. So that, that's, that's the commonality among all of us. No, and that's cool because, you know, a lot of, of agriculture work in the United States at land grants and other universities is funded uh, by companies and, you know, the private sector, but often it's sort of, you know, it's not, you know, you're not getting the cliff bars and the Patagonias, you're getting, you know, a big agrochemical or, or uh, other sorts of bigger companies. And it's sort of nice to see these mid sized, you know, companies with a mission investing in your work essentially. For for sure. And, And we don't work with people we have to apologize for. So right. that's the first rule. And I, then second is the, the folks that help fund us, and it is critical to our existence, is that funding, is there aren't strings attached. Right. So there's 
they're in the endowment, it's written right in there that we will not patent what we do and we will not lock up the intellectual property of what we do. And Cliff Bar in particular is, is we don't do a tremendous amount that makes a better Cliff Bar. What we do is, is graduate PhD students that will go out into our communities mm-hmm. and continue the type of work that we do. And that's what these folks see. Right. They're seeing the future of it, not just the sort of for-profit side of it at all. That's great. I love for that, sure. For I, sure. I love that you said we don't work with people we have to apologize for. I'm going to steal that line because Food Tank, that's sort of the motto we try to to, uh, to follow as well. So I'll, I'll tell people that I'm stealing it from you, but I love it. It's great. It's my new motto. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we, just, we just documented that, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Um, so when I was telling, you know, like my family and, and colleagues that I was going to interview you and I described, you know, meeting you a few months ago in Seattle and how much I've admired your work, they, their question for you was, you know, uh, essentially no food is more loved or feared now than bread. And so I, I want you to tar- talk a little bit, if you can, about sort of the, the controversy over carbohydrates and sort of the, the movement for, for more gluten-free products and, and how your work figures into that, because you're also researching grains that are sort of naturally gluten-free, like um, uh, barley's gluten-free, isn't it? And, and, and some of the millets. So, you know, if you can just talk yeah, a little bit about that. Will do. And barley has some gluten in it, not as much, but buckwheat we buckwheat. work a lot with, and that that has no gluten, and buckwheat's highly nutritious. Sometimes we'll eat a lunch and we'll say, hey, we're gluten-free, you know, and we didn't didn't wave our hands about it, it just happened. So right. um, the, the thing about gluten is, and, and wheat and bread is that if we, if we say that plant breeders have, have sort of uh, ruined wheat, in one generation, I think it's giving them too much credit, first of all. So what what's changed really in our wheat system is how our products are made and how the gluten is put in there. Mm-hmm. So um, time has been taken out as an ingredient in bread. So right. if you go from dry flour to sliced and wrapped in a sliced and cooled in plastic wrapper in just over two hours, that's not bread. You know, that's a product that may look like it, but it's not bread. And and that gluten has not had a chance to um, deteriorate through fermentation, and and the nutritional value has not rot, uh, been able to rise through uh, fermentation. So, the first step is is that a long fermentation is required in our breads for mm-hmm. it to be real bread. The other one is we work with 100% whole wheat. So if you if you look at white flour, it's about 70% of the kernel that 30% that has been removed has no gluten in it. So so immediately you've taken, let's say, 100 pounds of something and you've made 70 pounds of white flour. By doing that, you've supercharged the gluten that's in there. So you've already ra- raised the amount of gluten mm-hmm. um, that's in there. You've also taken out all the fiber, all basically most of the iron, zinc, selenium, all those things. So so that has a factor in how we digest that as well. So, so we go for 100% whole wheat that you would want to eat because we sort of embrace the deliciousness of it. We also go for a long ferment, which is going to mellow and lighten the, the gluten that's in there. Another thing to look at is if you're going gluten-free and that means you're not eating frozen pizza, um, I think you're going to feel better no matter what, independent of that gluten. So mm-hmm. these highly processed foods, 
uh, have a lot of things in there besides gluten that we're that we're reacting to. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think there's there's certainly something to all of this. I'm, I'm not um, uh, dismissing any of it, but I, I think if people would look at their whole diet and, and look at including more whole grain mm-hmm. and long fermentations in what they do, they might see that that that's okay, right, in terms of what they can eat. So, sure. and, and there's a lot more to that, but. But I think getting rid of processed foods in your diet is a good start no matter what. Absolutely. And I mean, I think a lot of this, the fear of carbohydrates, you know, we have, while American culture is especially is obsessed, you know, with food and, you know, we have all these food programs on TV and, you know, everyone's Instagramming what they're eating for lunch and whatever. We also, you know, are scared of food. And I think, you know, it's easy to, or, you know, people think it's easy to eliminate certain foods from their diets and, oh, that's what'll make them healthy. And what you're saying, you know, you, you said this really interesting thing about, you know, we've, we've taken time out of, of the bread making process. And I think we've taken time out of the whole food system where we're obsessed with quick and, you know, and, and it's just really interesting. And I, I wonder, you know, if, if not just the companies you work with, but some of the, the the students and and the farmers you work with understand that you know they probably understand better than anyone why time is such a necessary ingredient they sure do and and time is an ingredient in our lives too but time is used by the food industry in two ways one is and they're both is hyper efficiency which has gotten us to where we Mm -hmm. are and we we like to think that we're we like to um, be less efficient, and we like to add more time to what we do. But time is used on the shelf life end as well, and that's where a lot of these helpers come in, uh, chemical helpers that are put into our food so that a flour tortilla can stay pliable for a year or more. That's just not – that's chemistry. That's not baking. So right. we, they add time in and shelf life, and then they take it out in the processing and development. But time's a critical ingredient. Uh, of course, not just in our lives, but in our food. And, and what we'll notice is that not only is it uh, is it enjoyable to spend a touch of time, but it's also more flavorful as flavors develop, and it's also more nutritionally available as time uh, does things naturally to our to our foods. So, yeah, time's a big one. Right, right. And I, I mean, you said at our our food tank summit. Uh, in March that you want to make food, I'm just looking at the quote, make food that has not had the hell processed out of it and is also affordable. Can you talk a little bit about that affordable <laughs> side of it? Yeah. yeah, so we're working with um, we're working with with bakers and chefs around the country to produce breads that are more uh, recognizable and more affordable. so so these you know a fourteen dollar um, loaf of rustic, beautiful bread is great, but but not everyone has access mm-hmm. to that, and not everyone recognizes that as bread as well. So we're working with um, we're working with um, folks at the local food banks and transition housing um, and free cafes in the area to develop a bread that's more recognizable to a greater extent of our community, mm-hmm. and then we hope to go out more nationally. We're working with again, bakers around the country on that, of, of what could bread look like. And it's not mm-hmm. it's not dismissing the sort of high-end bread, but it's filling a gap of, of bread in the middle, bread at a, at a price it. that's affordable to, to more members of our community, and it is accessible and approachable in terms of it will be soft and it will be a little lighter color, 
but it'll only have six ingredients in it instead of 26, which a normal normal soft bread in the grocery store is going to have over 20 ingredients. Many yeah. of them approach 30 ingredients, and and you need six for that style. For a rustic loaf, you only need four. But in a in a softer style, the the bakers will add a little bit of oil, probably olive oil, and a little bit of sweetener mm-hmm. just to uh, keep the softness in there and keep the moistness in. So you don't it doesn't taste sweet, but it's in there as a functional additive. So well, you only need six ingredients for that. Sure, and I mean that's so interesting because you're not just you know breed you know you're not just innovating and, and breeding different kinds of things and then coming up with you know a six ingredient bread that'll still be appealing to consumers you're you're also educating eaters about this type of thing can you talk a little bit about how it is to to talk to to consumers i mean you mentioned chefs but how how do you sort of articulate this to the consumer populace i think to the consumers the the first thing i would say is is don't be afraid of 100 percent whole wheat mm-hmm uh, bakers around the country are doing more and more with it, and it's becoming more and more um, acceptable in terms of the texture. And we can even lighten it up by using whole wheat that's a lighter color, but it's still as nutritious. Um, one one basic way that I, and I start with my own mother, so she's 94, and every time I go to her house, I take her bread out of the refrigerator and I say, Mom, please don't put your bread in the refrigerator. Put it in the freezer or leave it on the counter. So bread stales in the refrigerator very quickly. Mm-hmm. So so that's the mother of the person from the bread lab who's putting <laughs> it in the fridge. So <laughs> to put in perspective. Absolutely. So, and absolutely. we start from scratch each time. So um, you should, what I would do if I'm buying a, a loaf that's, that's not full of preservative, which is what I would do, or if I bake it myself, I'll slice it. Uh, for a day or so, and after that, I'll slice and put it in the freezer in a in an airtight bag, and it will stay there for a long time. You can make sandwiches out of frozen bread in the morning, and by the time it's lunchtime at work, it, they're just delicious. So, that's one is to to freeze your bread uh, pretty quickly. Another is is um, to look for breads that are naturally fermented, mm-hmm. which would have the gluten would be reduced in it, the strength of the gluten, but it's also more nutritious and. And what we see, too, is that people really desire that after a few times of eating a, a bread that's that's highly nutritious, you kind of crave that. And it has all the fiber in it, too. So so a kernel of wheat has 8 to 10% fiber. White flour has zero. It has zero fiber in it. So so that's one, too. That fiber helps fill you up, and it aids in your digestion absolutely, as well. So. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that's really great advice for consumers, and I don't think people... I, I love that you, you take the frozen bread and make a sandwich. That's just very normal stuff that everyone can do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want to go back to, to chefs for a second and, and talk about, you know, I don't know if you imagined when you were going to, you know, university that you'd be working with chefs one day. Can you talk about how they became so, I mean, and so much of how food education is disseminated, chefs are so important. So can you talk about your work with them and how that started? For sure. So, and you're right, when I was at um, Chico State and then um, at UC Davis, UC Davis, when I was working on my PhD in genetics, I basically sat at a microscope for about five years. And I, I never imagined that I'd be I'd have a lab with a bakery in it or I'd be working directly with bakers and chefs because you're kind of, as a plant breeder, you can be very removed 
you know, it, mm-hmm. it sounds surprising, I'm sure, that you can be removed from the people that you're you're aiming to help. And I, I didn't have much inter- interest in the, the big industrial bread anyway, but um, chefs started approaching us, uh, Blaine Wetzel at the Willows and Dan Barber at, at Blue Hill, Mark Vetri in Philly, and then um, more recently, uh, Nels Brisbane is our oh, resident nice. uh, culinary person in the in the lab. So... The chefs are critical, um, as are brewers, distillers, and, and bakers, but there, there's value in having well-known uh, members of those communities because they have a voice that people go to, and it's and they want what we all want, well, what many of us want, we in the lab for sure want, is food with, with fewer and more pure ingredients that can be very simple and very delicious, and then... Um, the key with that too is then to bring the price point within reason, and that's that's where we come in as breeders is is we can develop, and we don't do GMO. Um, we can develop modern wheats that have all those things plus a, a high yield for the farmer, so it works for the farmer first, and then that can bring the price point down, and that's important in our whole food system is is have the very best uh, ingredients available. To as many of us as possible, that price point has to come within reason. So we don't we don't traffic in in a very elite product. We just don't. And and by definition, wheat is one of the most basic products anyway. So it's it's kind of a fascinating one to work with. That's amazing. Um, you you know you said this thing that's very interesting to me. You know, plant breeders can be removed from people, the people that they're actually sort of working for. And so I'd love to hear about your interactions with farmers, especially in Washington State. I'm sure you have a million stories of, of, of how farmers have interacted with you and, and told you sort of the kinds of things that they're looking for from their crops. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really important point, and, and that is, and our motto is that we, we make it work for the farmer first. So if you're in a commodity system, which we are not, um, you you have to have the wheat look a certain way and a certain size and a certain texture and all of that is very defined and very strict. That means that the farmer may not get the crop that's best for him or her. So what I mean by that is we can develop something that's purple yet, let's say. In a commodity system, there's no button for that. Mm-hmm. Once you're out of that commodity system, you can do whatever you want and we can produce very high yielding wheats that have some uh, innovation or nuance or novelty to them. And then the farmers have places for those to go. So the, the, the way that we work directly with these farmers is to work directly with them. We grow crops on their ground. We talk to them, if not daily, then weekly. And they help inform us back of what they want in their crop. Mm-hmm. And if you have farmers working directly with breeders, and then you bring in the millers and the, the brewers, maltsters, distillers, bakers, whomever, each step of the way, they have wants, and we can we can develop very high yielding wheat that are quite unique, quite nutritious, and quite um, delicious. Actually, high in iron and zinc, that adds value to the to the farm. But then there needs to be somewhere for it to go to capture right. that value, and that's where the fillers and bakers come in. So, if each step of the way those folks are involved, which they are in the in the bread lab, it, it'd be a rare week that we don't have groups of all of those people together talking. Um, if all those are in step, then it works very well. And, and what we've done here in this valley, so we're in Skagit Valley, north of Seattle, the growers grow 80 different crops 
on a, the average farm size is 100 acres. The average farm size in the U.S. is 1,000. Right. And actually, in a state like Washington, 44% of our farmers are west of the Cascade. So it's this, it's this small-scale agriculture of very high value. They, they want to grow wheat to help their soil, and they want it to stay outside of the commodity system. Mm-hmm. So that's how we work with them, is, is we really work as facilitators throughout that whole system. And to me, I never imagined that as a geneticist and a plant breeder, right. that I'd be that involved with my community. Just never imagined that. Well, and it's so interesting because, and I've heard you say this too, you know, you're keeping that, that value really localized. So you're, you're working with so many different people along the chain that the value stays, you know, with the people who are, are living and breathing it every day. We're, we're, we're very set on that notion of keeping the value where it's produced. We don't have to add value. We have to just capture it before it disappears. And a way that it would disappear is if, a, if we grew wheat and a big hand came in with sharp fingernails and grabbed it and took it away somewhere and made flour out of it and sold that back to us or took barley and send it back to us as malt or beer. All of that can be done here. So each step of that process adds to value and adds, you know, living wage jobs within our community. If we can grow the wheat and also mill it and bake it, we can grow the barley, malt it and brew it and distill it. Each of those clicks of the, of the wheel there adds, it, it doesn't add value. It captures the value that's already inherent in that process. So we're really big proponents of a, of a re decentralization of our food system. And we, you know, we lost 25,000 flour mills in this country 120 years ago. Today, there's less than 200. That's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. That's huge. Um, and, and you talked also about how farmers, one of the things that, you know, they're focused on with with their fields is, you know, soil health. But I imagine even in a place like Washington State where we feel like, you know, there's enough rainfall and blah, 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 that, you know, are they concerned about climate change? Do you Are you talking to farmers? Are you breeding for more resilience? Can you talk a little bit about that? We sure are, and that's another good reason, you know, it's another strength of us being outside of a commodity system is a commodity system doesn't favor novelty or even variation. It, it just doesn't have room for it. The, an important point on change, like climate change, is the best way to work with climate change is to add variation back to the variation that you're seeing. And what I mean by that is if we have years that are variable, which we do, incredibly variable, then we better have variation in our field too. And that variation would be genetic variation. So the latest variety that we released uh, through our program here is called Skagit 1109. It's a modern land race. So there's thousands of different wheats within that variety, which is in a, in a commodity wheat, there would be one type. In this, there's thousands. Um, they each react differently to the environment. And it, it's a really important facet of what we do is we work with large amounts of variation and we Mm -hmm. keep that variation in the fields and the growers any grower that i talk to um comes out very clearly that that things are changing within our environment and it's tough to it's tough to do that if you don't have the change to go with it so that that's the style we use and we think it's a very good one yeah i love how you're preparing them for you know what may come down the line and they have different tools in pl- you know that they know about in place to to do you know to combat whatever they need to whether it's a pest or you know higher temperatures or, or whatever else 
For sure. Yeah, that, that variation, it's an evolutionary approach, and, and that's one that we favor is, is let, the, let the change help the plants develop uh, for that system. So it, it's pretty cool. You know, you mentioned that you work with, with brewers. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, beer and, and, and the, the work that you're doing to, you know, I, I heard you talk about at our summit, talk about, you know, uh, the importance or maybe somebody from the audience talked about the how, you know, to create relationships with cheesemakers and brewers and others so that you can have, you know, this really great culinary experience based on on the crops that you're helping um, innovate for. For sure. So and we work with all those. We work with with all facets of the food system, certainly cheese and beer and, and whiskey and um if you go right to whiskey, we work with Westland uh, Distillery in Seattle, which is uh, one of the top American single malts in the world. And I'm, I'm actually going to uh, Scotland with them in early November. Um, the, the thing there is, uh, just as it is with, with bread or other products, is they want variation. So the brewers that we work with or the distillers or any, any one of that uh, group, they want variation, so they want. They also want to get out of the commodity malt market, which is which is also predefined, just like wheat is. So, they're working with colors and they're working with flavor. Um, even in in beer, we know that that's that's a given. If you get rid of a lot of the hops, and I'm not a huge hops fan, um, if you tone the hops back, you better have good tasting beer, and and that's a very pure uh-huh. type of product. That can, that can come about through various malts. So there are a lot of malt forward, um, breweries here. We work with Chuck and Up Brewery. It's a three minute walk from my office, which nice. is great. Dangerous. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're very malt forward and they, they have been. So, so Westland is, and then back to Westland, the whiskey producer is, um, they're finding flavor now too. And whiskey can come from things other than the barrel. And that's huge. I mean, that's that's an international movement right now is flavors and the whiskeys. Beers, it's been there, and the other things, it's been there, but it's getting up into whiskey now. So it's super exciting, and yeah, you're right, it's super fun, too. That's great. That's great. And and so, I mean, I've heard you talk about scale before, and so, you know, uh, not not sc- sort of scaling out instead of, of up or, or making things more mm-hmm, recli- mm-hmm. replicable. Um, can you talk mm-hmm. about the Bread Labs model and if other, you know, universities or research institutions are sort of taking on what you're doing and, and, and trying to do it in other places? Yeah, for sure. So so we favor, you know, people ask us how you're, how we're going to scale up, and, and I think folks should be more interested in scaling down, first of all, and replicating, so working with a replicable model. And then really important point there is, is that has to occur without the price going up. And that's possible, right? If, if we're, if we're uh, keeping value where it's produced, that's possible. So, so we really favor that, that level of scale. And that scale may vary, right? So we work with a baker in Seattle and Portland that does over 13 million pieces a year. We work with bakeries that do thousands instead of millions. So, so scale is, is relative, of course, but, one institution that we're working with is the University of Kentucky. So David Van Sanford is a, a wheat breeder there. I'm going to Kentucky in early November, right before I go to Scotland. 
and we're having a farm field day where we're sort of celebrating wheat as a regional nice. crop. And, and David is a great breeder, and he works with culinary people there within his uh, college. I work with uh, Heather Estrada at Flathead Valley Community College in Kalispell. She's doing amazing things. She has a flower, a stone mill, and she runs the student, the college farm. So, so there are uh, different skills. We work with Yale, so our wheat is grown on the campus. This student farm at Yale nice. as well. So there's there's a huge range and there's a tremendous um, hunger, for lack of better words, for, for this type of thing. It, and it, it goes right to the food. It goes to the economics and the the equity and, and value that's embedded within a, within a system that can be designed like this. Absolutely. And I, I imagine that there's, you know, interest internationally for the work you're doing as well. Is that right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, so um, we're working on Crete and, and Northern England. As I said, I'm going to Scotland, and um, it's Italy. It's uh, a lot of places. I'm, well, I'm going to Finland this Friday, actually. So um, they want these regions want their bread back, mm-hmm. and I, I think some of them lost them completely. Some are losing them, but but people really want their bread back. And I, I nothing against lettuce, but. You know, we're not talking about uh, head lettuce here. We're talking about wheat, and it's a it's a big deal within these communities. So, and I don't know why I always go to lettuce, but it just seems an easy scapegoat. So. No, 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 I get you. Um, what do you think about what groups or organizations like the Land Institute are doing with uh, Kernza and and other mm-hmm. varieties? Yeah, and, and we're working with perennial wheat too. I think the I think the thing on on something like Kernza and, and other attempts is is you still have to yield, right? Mm-hmm. So so we want to hold our soil. We want to we want everything to be right, but but for the best use of our land, we really need to yield in a sensible way, in a responsible way. And and what I mean by that is I mean not over fertilizing and not. Not that Kearns is that, but I mean other other uh, programs can go heavily into input. So, at a reduced input, can we capture and improve the soil, and can we also capture a meaningful yield where the price point? It, again, for us, it goes right to the economics of it. And uh, what are we saving, and how, and how are people having access to this food product? So, it's super important for us is that that we bring price points down by the yield going up. And again, in a sensible way, we're not talking about spraying the hell out of it and, and fertilizing the hell out of it, but just how can we do things in a sensible way? And that's, that's the direction that we go in our program. Well, and I mean, what I love about it is that you're not just, I mean, you're interested in environmental sustainability, but you also realize the importance of social sustainability and economic sustainability. I mean, you're sort of looking at it very holistically where I, I think, you know, other research institutions can't do that or, or don't have the, the capacity to. So I think that's so important. I think they, yeah, I think you need to want to do that. And, and for us, we, we have that, that we feel really, it's really important that we're part of a community and, and our PhD students do that. You know, they, they bring that to the program too, where they, they want more, right? We can, we can look through a microscope or we can make baguettes all day long or whatever, or breed our wheat, however we do it. But to, to actually have an impact, a positive impact within our community. And, and that does, that is applied, right? So do jobs come from it? Do, do people have access to, to better food in a more affordable manner? And 
all of those are just super important to us. And, and maybe for me, at, you know, at this point in my career in life, I just sort of really enjoy looking around a lot more than I, than I did probably earlier in my career. And I, I think, you know, people can do that, right, with very little capacity, right? We don't, there's, there aren't many of us in the lab and, and we have funding through our partners and sponsors, but, but we're not a, a super well-funded lab, that's for sure, right? Sure, but, but sure. I think what I, what I cherish is that, that, that we embrace just being a little different. I think there's some beauty in that for sure. Absolutely. Quirky. I, that's what gets you ahead, I think, in, in, in the, the food world anyway. Um, before you, we let you go, I know you're off to Finland in a few days. What's next for the Bread Lab this fall? What, what are your big projects? The big projects are to continue to work on, a, on bread that's really recognizable to people. Um, we're also working on um, ways to make the, the grain that we use in our bread more, um, more nutritious. We're working with folks at uh, Tufts University on that in terms of how That's we where can, I went. <laughs> how we can, yeah, perfect, yeah, yeah. So the Friedman School there, we um, and I remember that now, yeah. But um, we're working with some great, great uh, PhD students and researchers there as nice. well. So that that fun for us is to strengthen connections across the country and across the across the planet too i almost said across the universe but across the planet <laughs> um and it's just you know it's just fun and, and we never really it, it may sound i don't know what but but we never had a five-year plan and i'm glad we don't because right. it wouldn't have it wouldn't have we wouldn't have stayed with it anyway so we're pretty good at adapting quickly and going in directions that we didn't think were were necessary that we're even aware of so um but but certainly over the next year it's nutrition and access is what we're really high on. And we want to release a couple new wheat varieties too for the growers in the area. That's fantastic. Uh, I think nutrition and access and collaboration and connection are really the key to, to, to what you're doing and why it's so successful. If people want more info about you and about the Bread Lab, where do they go? They would go to our website. Um, you just search WSU Bread Lab and it'll pop right up. And they should click. There's a brown chalkboard there, and it says Writings from the Bread Lab. Click on that, and there'll be about 12 essays there that they can go through. There's a few are pretty scientific. The others are are um, really uh, sort of for general readership uh, about bread, and there's some on gluten there and about white flour and different things, but there's some, some interesting ones there. Uh, Bethany Economopoli, one of our former students, has a real nice essay on Basquiat, you can, there's a Basquiat drawing on our website. You can click on that, and it's a, that one's really thoughtful and funny, too, I think. so. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephen. This has been awesome, and I'm really so glad to talk to you and, and can't wait to, uh, to visit, hopefully, and, and see all the great work that you're doing in person. I think it'd be great, Danny. Yeah, come up, and we'll do some baking, and, and thanks so much for chatting. It was a lot of fun. Can we have beer, too? And whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll walk to the brewery as well. Yeah, don't worry about that. Amazing. <laughs> we'll get a driver. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again. Have a good trip. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. Please also send me your suggestions to danielle at foodtank.com. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk.